Hi guys, welcome back to part two of episode 143 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Hope you've had a good weekend so far. So I'm back with part two of Shanae Edwards' story. If you haven't listened to part one, um, you're going to have to go back and listen to that first for a little bit of context and to also talk about uh, Shanae's murder on Mount Matatsminda in Tbilisi, Georgia. I'm getting good at pronouncing those, I think, but it's going to get more challenging throughout this episode, unfortunately. Um, so where we left off, Shanae had gone hiking on Mount Matatsminda on July 30th, uh, 2021, uh, not that long ago, really, when you think about it. And um, she had gone missing and not turned up to meet friends on top of a friend overseas having received a phone call from her where she seemed to be in distress and uh, obviously being attacked by someone or in immediate danger from someone uh, that would remain nameless for a couple of months. So the investigation kicked off very quickly after they found Sinead's body the following morning on July 31st. She had been stabbed 13 times, five of them in the neck. So obviously uh, a very violent attack and they haven't given too much away the Georgian police in terms of uh, the state of the crime scene. But from what I can tell, it was chaotic, according to one source. And um, they did find the knife that was responsible, the, the knife that was responsible, a person was responsible and used a knife. Um, and it seemed to be damaged uh, and it was pretty quickly linked. They also found quite a lot of blood, obviously, from Sinead. Um, as well as other blood and other kind of specimens um, on the scene as well. So they had a lot to work with and they quickly collected that DNA. Now, news broke very quickly uh, across the world and obviously it was big in Tbilisi as well as back in Australia where Sinead was from. And women who were local to Tbilisi, both locals and expats living in the city, came forward to with a bit of chatter about um, recent events that they'd experienced on the same walking trail on Mount Matatsminda. And this is where I'm going to get a little bit worked up, you guys. So I swore that I'd talked about this case when it happened. So after I recorded part one, I went back and found the case that I recorded the closest to when this happened. And I found me talking about it and it was at the start of episode 104, uh, Last year, it was the Tanya Ebert episode, and I opened it up talking about how a young Australian woman had been murdered and how the coverage seemed to indicate uh, that people saw what was Sinead Edwards being murdered and thought that it was a couple having rough sex. Now, I was very worked up at the time hearing that, and then I thought maybe over time, you know, the truth will come out, but no, that's exactly what people thought when they witnessed it, and I'm still mad about it, reading about it. Uh, hearing myself talk about it, I started getting worked up again. And then I went and found a couple of articles from that time. A number of them are now missing that talk about it. But I found one from the Express Digest around the same time that says what happens. And this is what happened. Quote, that afternoon, one local woman posted on an expat's Facebook group that she heard a woman screaming at the trails under Matatsminda Park about an hour after Miss Edwards had left home. 
So that's one woman heard screaming and she took to an expat's page instead of reporting it, which she didn't see anything. So I'm kind of okay with that because it could be you hear screaming from people having fun and stuff you don't know. But then the article goes on and it says, quote, another woman wrote in the same group claiming to have witnessed a disturbing sight on the mountain about the same time Miss Edwards went missing. She claimed to have seen a man having aggressive sex with a woman about 50 metres away while her and her partner were walking. <sighs> Unquote. So her and her male partner, nice Friday afternoon walk, daylight hours, people on the trail, near a family-friendly Ferris wheel slash theme park at the top of Mount Matatsminda. She sees what she thinks is a couple having aggressive sex on the trail. <sighs> Come on, guys. Not only does she not report this to police, but she takes to an expat's forum to kind of seem to uh, toss up ideas. Now, I don't have this woman's name, but I'm not a fan of her um, for a number of reasons. First, don't take to an expat's group when you make a connection between a murder happening and something that you saw. Don't wait for the police to come track you down after they get alerted to this bullshit post. Secondly, in my th almost 35 years, I've seen people having sex publicly once. It was on a beach in Melbourne and it's a beach that's renowned for some dodgy shit. Now, if I saw on a walking trail in the middle of the trail, what was seemingly a woman in athletic wear and a man probably with his hand over her mouth having sex or what I considered aggressive sex, I would not think that was an everyday thing. Um, and I know some people will rationalise it and think that it is, but it's not. And it's kind of this way for people to, I guess, rationalise in their own mind what they're seeing is completely normal uh, when it's not. If you see something like that, um, don't just keep walking past them. Uh, Sinead, I'm sorry to guilt this woman. She's not a victim, sorry. Um, Sinead's the victim. And she was with a male partner. The odds are that Sinead was still alive, which she was because uh, he hadn't stabbed her to death yet, and that her life would have been saved by them approaching the two of them. And if you've got it wrong, you got it wrong. But either way, they're breaking the law, right? Either way, they're having sex in a public place, which in most progressive societies is illegal for a number of reasons, okay? So either way, you're going up and you're going, look, you're having sex, which it turns out to be why are you doing this? This is a family thing. And the odds are the guy will run away or they'll get up and they'll go, sorry about that or whatever. They're not going to kind of attack you for it. If you come up on them and it turns out that he's actually raping the woman and trying to kill her, you've saved a woman and he will likely run away because not only do you have a man there, um, but you're currently outnumbered. There's now three of you on one, even if he's got a knife and he probably doesn't want you to see him. So he would run either way. It could have been stopped, I'm sorry, um, and this is what I'm angry about, uh, that kind of rationalisation, not thinking enough of it to go home and jump on an expat's forum for people living in Tbilisi and kind of tossing it around. Like, no, if you're thinking about it enough and it is clearly something that's stuck in your mind, um, I don't care what you're I, – I don't care what you're uh, – rationalization is. Um, and I get mad every time I think about that. I was mad then and I'm mad now. 
So that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but I hate the thought of Shanae knowing that people were just there and thinking probably in her mind that they think that this is a couple having sex when she's currently in the process of being raped and murdered. Um, so a representative was sent from the Australian embassy in Turkey to Tbilisi. Don't know why. I don't know if there's not an Australian embassy in Tbilisi, but they provided really good consular support for Shanae's family. And her brother was currently living in London. So he travelled over to to Georgia and he was there later on during the trial. Her friends put out a call out for a home for Shanae's foster mum and her four kittens um, and were able to kind of facilitate that. And locals left lots of flowers at the door of Shanae's apartment, which I found really heartening considering she'd only been there for about 18 months beforehand. And they cared enough that this has happened to a local in a city that it really doesn't happen very often in, especially not to tourists and expats. So the investigation lasted 40 days in total from the day that Sinead was discovered. It was thorough. It was unrelenting. And honestly, I wish that more developing countries, Mexico, uh, would kind of take heed of the fact that Georgia went above and beyond for Sinead, for her family, and in the investigation. And Georgia is, by all accounts, a poor country with way less tourism than places like uh, Jamaica or Mexico, so they don't have an excuse as far as I'm concerned for not providing the support that a country like Georgia did, and I think that's very evident. Uh, They didn't say, look, we're poor, we can't do this, we are understaffed, blah, blah, blah. To them, there was no excuses. So they collected DNA at the scene, and as I said, there was ample evidence to collect, and most of it was Sinead's blood as well as blood from an unknown male offender. It was then sent out to a number of different countries through kind of like an Interpol service that they have, and they started narrowing down the blood to several known offenders in the area. So they brought them all in. It was, they say, several dozen offenders. So probably they were probably bringing in about 50 men from Tbilisi that had histories of both robbery, rape and murder uh, in their pasts. Each was brought in for questioning, basically forced to give their DNA to compare against the samples taken from the crime scene. Um, So the police said, quote, as a result of complex and multifaceted investigative activities, the circle of the supposed offenders was reduced to a minimum, whereas as a result of genetic examination reports, the identity of the offender was unequivocally confirmed. So I will get into one of those people who they brought in and how it was linked to him. Hundreds of police officers were involved in the investigation. They interviewed more than 200 people, including friends of Sinead's, co-workers, neighbours and people who were at Matatsminda Park the day she was murdered. Based on the information uh, that was given to them through people who had seen sketchy guys on the trail that day and in the days and weeks leading up to Sinead's murder, including women who claimed that they were kind of followed or there was like sketchy dudes, whether it was one or more. Um, And obviously the woman who witnessed what she said she witnessed and thought it was totally normal, police were able to create a composite sketch uh, of the person that they were looking for. So they're ticking all their boxes in terms of 
composite sketch, then they'll have DNA and the person, once they narrow it down, they won't be able to get out of it. So it actually turned out that Shanae had a boyfriend of sorts. Um, as I said on part one, Shanae didn't talk about her life, you know. She didn't share every facet of it on social media, which I really like. Um, and she didn't talk about her personal life. So this guy's not on her Instagram. But then again, um, he's not on her Instagram in terms of pictures of him. But neither is anyone really. Um, but he spoke to the Express Digest in the days after Shanae was found dead. And he kind of said some really lovely things about her and their story. And I just wanted to kind of share that because it's just another example of plans that Shanae had and where her life could have gone and what was ended because of the person that I'll talk about coming up. So Moody Al-Sayed is a Lebanese guy and he'd met Shanae while they were both in Cambodia. When I talked about on part one, she spent an ample amount of time in Phnom Penh and across Cambodia in 2020. And there's a lot of expats there and uh, you meet new people all the time. And so she had kind of had a little bit of a whirlwind romance with uh, Moody and the two ultimately had planned to move to Georgia together. However, things changed and they broke up but they stayed in touch and Shanae ended up travelling on and going to Georgia alone. He said in this interview where he kind of talked to her as opposed to about her, he said, quote, I was super proud of you, of what you achieved there so quickly and you were happy, so I was happy, unquote. So basically at the beginning of 2021, he said that the two realised they were, quote, still madly in love, but all these lockdowns and restrictions were coming into play and he wanted to go immediately to Georgia, but every door was like slammed in his face. And he he basically said, quote, I was ready to fly instantly to Georgia to be with you, but the entry was forbidden unless I was vaccinated. At that point, getting vaccines in Lebanon was a hard mission, but I tried and I tried and I tried and I kept hitting walls of curfews, lockdowns, no vaccines and more. I was supposed to be there to protect you like I did all the time we were together. Your life was taken away by an evil person while you were doing something you loved. Hiking was one of your favourite things, unquote. And he said since she died, uh, he said, world and time has stopped. And he said, quote, I can't even think straight. It's the first time in my life I'm lost and without a purpose, unquote. He also went on to say that Shanae was the love of his life and they had plans to start a family once he moved to Georgia. He, he said, because at this point they hadn't caught the murderer, he said, quote, I have one mission now in my life and that is to kill the person who took her life. I don't care if I spend the rest of my life behind bars, justice will be served and you are going to suffer the same she suffered, unquote. Get yourself a man like that, ladies not one of these simps who just kind of like pussy out like and are scared of conflict and stuff when it comes to protecting you. Um, so speaking of that, I was thinking of something kind of last week uh, because I just wanted to talk about it here um, because I was talking recently on an episode or I've talked about it on and off, but I talked about on the Toy Accordingly episode how in Australia women do not have the option of carrying a gun or mace. We have no legal 
uh, recourse for protecting ourselves. And there seems to be no discussion other than the occasional uh, member of parliament saying, maybe we should allow them to protect themselves. Um, and I have a lot of like thoughts on that, obviously, and I get pretty heated about it and a lot of stories about how having something could help you. And then I kind of talked about how I don't think self-defence classes necessarily, um, while they give you good tools, they don't necessarily give you tools that will help you at the time when you're coming up against a really strong man or something. And so I realised that I hadn't talked about something that was pretty, I think, well, it's legal in like every country. And I think that every woman should kind of have one, um, whether it's for personal protection or for a medical reason. Um, and I was thinking about it because my late grandfather, who I I loved, I had wonderful grandparents um, and my mum's parents and, and they both died within a few years of each other and um, they both were born in August and they both died in August, albeit three years apart. And there's a lot of like synchronicity with August. They do- were born two days apart and they died 10 days apart. Um, and my cousin, who I've talked about on the podcast, died um the 29th of August, which is tomorrow. And my dad's birthday is yesterday and my birthday is coming up. And, um, there's just a lot of kind of superstition around August for me. And when I was thinking of Gramps the other day, because I often think of him and it just shows he died when I was, you know, 15, but important people in your life, it doesn't matter how long they're in your life for, um, he's been out of my life now longer than he was in my life, but the impression that he left and the, um, example he set for what to expect from treatment from men. Um, I really put him on a pedestal and I'm so grateful for my gramps. Uh, his name was Les. And he, when I was about 14, he gave me, it was when I was starting to go out with friends and, you know, I walked around the streets a lot and we got everywhere on foot. I went to his house because I would go there multiple days a week and I'd stay there about three nights a week um, because things were quite hectic at home. And when he died, which wasn't long after this, I was in the process of moving in with them, which is a whole other story. Um, And because of my brothers and stuff at home and just trying to get through school with how chaotic things were at home was very difficult for me. And they lived around the corner from my school. So my gramps, I went around there one afternoon uh, and he would make me bring cream cakes um, around, which were like a Claire's <laughs> on my way home. And he gave me, he, I went and sat in the living room and he gave me this box and I opened it and he had bought me a rape alarm, right? I don't think my gramps use that terminology. Today, they call it a personal protection alarm. There's a number of different um, names for it. I have done quite a big Google search and you can get them all over the place online and you can get them for as little as like $15. But I'm actually pretty sure that my gramps had bought it from like an online or this was before the internet, um, a late night infomercial or something like that uh, off the TV. And I believe he bought one for my gran and him as well because my gran had um, quite bad dementia and my gramps was getting older and he didn't want to put her in a home. So he basically said, I've bought you this to carry with you. And <clears throat> at the time they weren't all tech savvy, these kind of little things. It was like a brick. It was like the size of a Nokia, probably 3310. And it was an old school one and it had a pin that you pulled out and he showed, he took me out in the backyard and showed me how to use it. And it was, um, you pull a pin out 
of the side of it and this alarm went off and it was so loud and high pitched. He basically said to me, hold it to the person's head if you're ever in danger and pretty much it'll either blow out their eardrum or it'll get the attention of other people and this person will run away. But either way, luck, it's a win-win. So he died not long after that and um, it was the anniversary of his death the other day. And I was thinking about it because I was thinking I had this thing forever and I carried it, but I never had to use it. But I held on to it like I held on to a lot of things that he'd given me. So when I was in uni, years later, I still had it. Battery was still going and me and my friend were having a few drinks and messing around and I got it out and we pulled the pin out and it went off and... um it wouldn't turn off. All you had to do was put the pin back in to turn it back off. And we were doing it and nothing was happening. It had completely malfunctioned after so many years of me having it in my bag. And um, we put it under cushions. We put it under a mattress. We were basically throwing it against a wall, trying to make it stop and it would not stop. And in the end, security from our university halls was called. And we were like, we can't turn this thing off. And in the end, we had to pretty much break it to turn it off. But I was thinking about it because Gramps, while he came from a different generation, he understood, uh, you know, he was often really worried about me walking around. He was often worried about me going to the movies, you know, with my friends or by myself. He always thought that there could be a pervert around. And my mum would be like, look, she's responsible and she's mature. And Gramps would say, that's not, it doesn't matter how mature she is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help when you come up against someone who has bad intentions. And so I always have that kind of in the back of my mind. And so I did kind of like a, a bit of a search online. And I really think that you guys listening should consider buying one. And I have this week kind of thinking about Shanae and thinking about my gramps purchased a new one that hopefully won't malfunction. Um, so in Australia, there's a, there's a website called trailsurvivor.com.au, which is called an ultra loud self-defense alarm for women. It's for women who go hiking or exercising. Uh, and it's pretty much the same thing, albeit it's a lot more, uh, updated and state of the art. It's only $30. Um, and it's basically, same thing and it will draw attention or scare the person off hopefully you can buy them on Etsy Amazon has them that you can put on your keychain for as little as ten dollars which is amazing that's what I've purchased um there's one they come under different names personal security alarm panic alarm um I've purchased one purely because of my condition and that um sometimes you know I feel like when it's flaring up or whatever I feel like I'm going to if something could happen to me, um, I feel better, but also I feel better just having it, you know? So I just really wanted to kind of talk about that. Um, and yeah, like ladies, I know a lot of you live rurally or you live kind of regionally and you like getting out and exploring. These things are legal everywhere. There's no law that can tell anyone, um, that they can't have an alarm on them. It's different carrying a knife. It's different carrying mace. That's not legal here. It's legal in the States. But it's also cool because if you've got your keys in your hand, all you have to do is flick this thing and there's no pin to pull like my old school one. And um, and some of them are so high tech, they cost a little bit more, that it actually is connected to your phone through Bluetooth. And by flicking something or clicking something a couple of times on the side, it then goes to your phone, which calls the police. And yeah, like just 
do a search and let me know if you've got one, if you've ever had to use it, hopefully not. But if you suffer from a medical condition as well, um, there's just, there's no reason not to have one. So I just, I just want to talk about that before we get um, into the arrest of the perpetrator of this horrible crime. And um, I'm not saying that Shanae would have, if she'd had one of these, had a different fate, but you don't know. 40 days after Shanae was found murdered on the 8th of September 2021, so not even a year ago, they finally arrested a person who was proven through DNA uh, to be unequivocally the person who killed Shanae Edwards. And this was local Tbilisi resident, 33-year-old Raphael Mersakulov. Now, I'm going to try to just call him by his surname because it feels a little bit too chummy calling him Raphael because I had a tutor that I really liked in uni called Raphael. Um, so I'm going to call him Mersakulov. He was charged once he was arrested with armed robbery and intentional homicide. It was never confirmed by police, nor was the charge included that Sinead was raped and there's no explanation why this wasn't included. But the maximum sentence in Georgia for murder, uh, as they call it, intentional homicide, is 15 to 20 years. On average, it's around 15 years. At the time in the media, it was really good because they didn't immediately name him. Um, they wanted to not only not get it out there who he was for until they finished up their kind of testing and to have it lock stock that this was the guy. So they called him by his initials, which was RM in the media. Um, and then I found an interesting fact about him. So there's basically in Western coverage of this, including Australia, it's the same articles over and over again. Nothing about him. It's like this guy's a ghost. There's very little still out there about him. So I went back to kind of local Georgian coverage in Tbilisi to see if they talked about who this guy was because it was even hard to get his age. Uh, bear in mind, he looks like he's in his 40s, but he's 33 um, and prisoned in just a year has not been kind to him. So I found an interesting fact buried deep in local coverage from the Agenda Georgia at the time of Mersakulov's arrest. And uh, basically this stated, quote, Mersakulov lived on the same uh, Gojibashvili Street in central Tbilisi where Brooke Edwards lived and the motive where the, uh, behind the crime could be robbery, unquote. Now, Nowhere other than there, which is a very legit source, the agenda, it's one of their leading news organisations, state this, and I found this very compelling, that he lived on the same street. Whether or not this is, you know, it's a it's a main street, so maybe he it's just a coincidence. Um, no one has ever kind of fleshed out whether or not he followed her up the trail. I have kind of thought, you know, it's a potential that he knew who she was. It's never come out that it was plotted beyond seeing her on the trail, but you don't know if he'd seen her before. And this is another reason why those personal protection alarms, I think, you know, are so important. So when he was arrested, he applied for bail and he was denied, which is good. And early on, he exercised his right to silence uh, through his lawyer, which they have over there. DNA testing quickly confirmed that he was the perpetrator and toxicology reports taken from his blood found trace event, um, trace evidence of psychotropic drugs. Now, 
This means nothing to me because antidepressants are classified as psychotropic drugs. So me and probably a lot of you probably have trace uh, effects of it in our system. And it was all, it was microscopic. So there's like five different categories for psychotropic drugs. Um, there's antipsychotics, there's antidepressants. They never said what exactly it was, but they also say it does not affect your, what he was on was no excuse for what he did. So he ultimately pleaded guilty to robbery, but he early on would not plead guilty to intentional homicide because he claimed he never intended to hurt the victim or kill her. And in Georgia, you have to prove intent. Um, and so the prosecutor was not buying this, but basically he said that the initial thing was he saw her on the trail and he, she was carrying her an iPhone 12 at the time and he saw her with the phone, which is probably when she was talking to friends on the phone while she was hiking and he wanted the phone. Bear in mind, I'm not making excuses for him because I hate him, but it's a poor country and um, there's very little out there about his employment or anything and I kind of get the feeling that he was unemployed. Um, but basically when he went to rob her of the phone, he said that Shanae threw the phone into basically the trail, off the trail into the woods, um, which is, I'm not blaming her or anything like that, <clears throat> but just give them the phone if you're ever like held up or anything like that. But then again, I was thinking that's exactly what I'd do. I'd be like, no, you're not getting this. In the heat of the moment, that kind of anger. No, I worked for this. Fuck you. Um, so he basically said that after that, he then killed her and stabbed her to death. Now, bear in mind this whole time he's carrying the knife on the trail. So he, the prosecutor is not buying it in the sense that he had the knife the entire time. And if you just intend to rob someone, why are you carrying that? unless it's an armed robbery, which is what he was charged with. He then stabbed Schnee a number of times. Now, if you, even though he wasn't charged with rape, based on what the woman saw on the trail that I talked about earlier, he very clearly sexually assaulted her at least, if not, you know, actual rape. And so this was happening on the trail. And while they've never gone into a play-by-play -play of how he did it, I presume that he then dragged her off the trail and proceeded to stab her to death off the trail out of eyeshot of people. But we do know that they collected the DNA evidence because in the process of stabbing Sinead, he cut his hand pretty badly. He left his own blood everywhere as well. Um, he then threw the knife. He took her bag and her belongings. He couldn't find the phone because Sinead had thrown it. So later when the police are trying to track the phone later that night looking for her, it was pinging on Mount Matatsminda but they couldn't see where because she'd thrown it into, you know, the wilderness basically. Now I was also thinking Sinead could have thrown it to kind of hope that he ran after it, you know, like a dog, which is another kind of thought that I had. Um, so this is where I come to <clears throat> a person who I equally have disdain for, and this is reported by the agenda. So I'm not going to name her, but Mercer Coos, uh, whatever, his aunt said pretty much from the onset of him being arrested that she excludes his involvement in the crime. So cheers for that. Like we're not going with science. We're not going with he's got like a one in 10 trillion chance of it being anyone else but him in the DNA. It's cool. She excludes it. So it's fine. 
Uh, she said that while he has a previous record, um, arrest and conviction for robbery, she said that there's no way he could have done it. She also said that he had been a member of the ruling party in Georgia at the time, which is the Georgia Dream Party, uh, which I talked about a little bit on part one, but didn't name them. Now, this has nothing to do with the crime or what he did. And Georgia Dream is like a left-wing organisation that's the ruling party. They very quickly said, we've got tens of thousands of members, which is true. And it's got nothing to do with us, which is completely right. It just seems to be the case that they made that connection. Now, his merciful Mercer Kulova, um, which is the female version of Mercer Kulov, uh, this is his auntie. She said that he did not do it unequivocally, despite science and people seeing it. She said this child would not be able to kill a person. He is afraid of the dead. We were friends. We did not hide anything from each other. I would be aware if he had committed such a thing, unquote. Now, shortly when we get into the trial, you'll have his brother and sister-in-law saying, yeah, he didn't, did it. And he came to us after and told us that he did it. But despite all that, this woman is still living, you know, with her head in the sand, whether in denial, because she's been spending time with her nephew, who she's close to. She's old. She's like in her sixties. She's so, she's got so much cognitive dissonance in regards to him that I don't think she can ever comprehend that he did it, but too bad um, because he did. And I can say that because he's been found guilty. So the trial went ahead in February just this year, which is 2022. And Tyson, Sinead's brother, was living in London at the time and he flew to Georgia to attend the trial and represent the family. So very early on, Raphael Mersakulov, um, he basically tried to claim that he was mentally ill. Uh, and by February, they had basically assessed him by one of the leading Georgian psychiatric institutions based in Tbilisi. He was deemed to be completely mentally healthy. Um, and they found that, quote, at the time of the crime, he was not in a state of passion, unquote. Now, when you look at pictures of him, which are generally the most common pictures you'll see when you look up pictures of the trial, uh, it's like night and day from pictures of him before. Now, before, it's actually very scary because he's almost identical to Sinead's boyfriend um, that I talked about earlier. They've got the same face, same beard, and I don't think anyone looks alike, and it kind of threw me a lot. Um, and I'll put up pictures of them which are out there, but he kind of had a lot more weight on him, this guy, Mesokulov, um, and obviously since he was arrested in the Feb, um, in the September and it went to trial, he'd lost a considerable amount of weight and he'd obviously started to become very unhinged in prison because Georgian prisons are not good and I'm not, I don't care in this instance. Um, and he's he looks like a shadow of himself. He looks totally unhinged, weepy, um, a lot of kind of these touching his heart and sad eyes, but looking directly at the the cameras in the courtroom. Um, he cried and this is when he started to talk and he said, I apologise to this country, to the people, to the family of that person, unquote. Now, if you think, well, he's speaking English and it might just be, 
you might not speak it very well. No, he was speaking in Georgian. So uh, he said that person instead of Shanae in Georgian. So he doesn't care about her and what he did. He only cares about himself. In court, he said that uh, he he basically said that what caused him to do it was that, quote, the devil awoke inside of him, unquote. And he tried to claim the short-term mental illness kind of defence where it just came over him, um, but no one was buying it. The prosecutor, uh, Georgie Kabula Deasy, who I'm going to call Georgie, uh, he demanded that he be found guilty of premeditated murder. He said in court, quote, the accused stabbed Shanae 13 times, five of them in the neck, which confirms the intent to kill. She was then stabbed with a knife after which she was brutally killed. Then he hid the victim's body, unquote. And he went on to say basically that uh, he, once Mersakulov killed Shanae, the plan was he dragged her off the trail. He covered her with leaves, which is how she was found, but he intended to set fire to her and try to burn her body, but it just it just didn't happen. Uh, Georgie went on to say that he attacked her to rob her, uh, but then when that didn't happen, he lost his shit because she threw her phone and he started to strangle her, which was the plan to conceal um, the armed robbery with the knife. And then he, you know, started stabbing her. Uh, basically they firmed up their defense with the help of, uh, Mersakulov's brother and his sister-in-law who were not going down with him. They basically said to the police, even though it would have been good if they'd come forward around July 31st and not in the, you know, October, uh, that after he committed the crime, he went to their house and he told them what had happened. Um, and basically their reasoning for not coming forward to police was he, Mersakulov said, if you tell anyone, I will kill your son. And they had a little boy and they said that they were scared of him, basically, um, which they should have gone to police because this is all, he's already got a history of this kind of thing. Um, you know what I mean? He then made a statement of sorts to Sinead's family. Uh, he said that he, quote, wasn't that kind of person and, quote, just got into that situation, unquote. He also went on to say that, quote, he killed himself that day as well, unquote. Sinead's family asked for the maximum sentence to be imposed, which is generally around 15 years for murder, which is classified as a life sentence. And honestly, if you see the state of Georgian prisons, which I'll talk about in a bit, I'd be surprised if people made it out if they lived long enough to see out a sentence. Uh, it's kind of Bali style. But you'll be happy to know that Raphael Mersakulov was sentenced to 20 years in prison just in March this year, just a few months ago. So they went above and beyond in terms of getting him that sentence. Now, this is what he said in response to it. Quote, this is a loss that you cannot make up for. Just forgive me. No matter what the verdict is, I will not vote. I will not appeal. I will stand up to the end. I apologise, unquote. Now, mark my words, he will appeal. He's full of shit. When, he, when the gravity of the situation hits him, he will appeal like every other murderer who thinks that they're more important than their victim. Um, and you can... You can quote me on that. I'm sure I'll be back in about a month or two to say that he's appealing. It is cold comfort, but I researched the state of Georgian prisons because I was intrigued as to whether they're very Soviet, like what 
Alexei Navalny is currently in in a penal colony um, or whether they're a bit more modernised. But the one he's in in Tbilisi is very bad. Um, it actually shocked me considering Georgia is making strides in terms of coming out of being a developing country, just how bad it was. Um, it's unsanitary, it's cramped, and they have to take turns sleeping in bunks because there's not enough bunks for everybody. It reminds me of a mix of um, a Russian penal colony, Karabakan prison in Indonesia, and that prison in Bolivia, which the book Marching Powder is about, uh, with a few more rules there's a there used to be a lot of torture in Georgian prisons. Basically, the government is does not have enough funding. Uh, so basically, it costs. It co- it should cost around um a hundred. Well, the average Georgian earns about eighty eight US dollars equivalent a month, which is crazy. Um, but the state only has enough money to allocate about the equivalent of 12 US dollars a month for each prisoner uh, each month in Georgia. So as a result, they have to, they don't get given enough food. And like in Bali or like in Bolivia, their families often have to come forward and and front things. Um, So I was thinking maybe his aunt who thinks he's innocent and says there's no way he did it and that, you know, she's pointing the finger at Sinead being, you know, the shitty person in all of this for being murdered, maybe she should pay for it. That's what I was thinking. She should front the rest. Um, According to Prison Insider, in 2015, 60 life-term prisoners who were sentenced to life in prison went on a hunger strike. Now, I read about a few of what the crimes that they did and they didn't just get life for nothing. Um, They were violent offenders who did horrible fucking things. Uh, And they went on a hunger strike and nobody cared and they eventually realised they had to eat something because the the prison just didn't care. Basically, in 2012, there was massive prison reform in Georgia because it had one of the highest incarceration rates before that in the world and people were sent away for really long sentences for very minor crimes. It has changed a lot since 2012. Uh, They've halved their prisoner rate now. Um, But if you commit a murder like Shanae Edwards is one, like Mersakulov, you'll be going away for life. And I don't think any of us care about the conditions he's in. Up until 2012, torture was normalised in Georgian prisons. And then in September of 2012, a video emerged in the world media that showed prisoners in a major security prison in Tbilisi basically being beaten, kicked and raped with brooms. Uh, So when this hit the news, they did a massive prison reform. Um, That is kind of a thing of the past now. So basically what they're dealing with is just sitting around all day, taking turns sleeping. Um, and if you look up pictures, it's it's bad. Uh, the, pr- the prisons are like, you know, 80 years old. Um, the wiring looks really dangerous. I mean, I am, I believe, and you've listened to 143 episodes, you probably know, I believe that prison should first and foremost be a punishment for a crime. And then rehabilitation should be secondary to that. I think that Western countries, Australia, um, a lot of prisons in America, we sit around working out, 
they have gyms in our ones. They get awesome meals. Um, I knew a guy who did five years in uh, the biggest prison in Melbourne. He said it was like a holiday, quote unquote, uh, and he had trouble kind of adjusting when he got out because everything had been done for him. He didn't have to do anything, didn't have to work within the prison. He said the meals were good. He said all he did was he worked out all day, hung out with his mates. He came out really jacked up. Um, and there needs to be that punishment factor. Um, I'm not of the Scandinavian design of uh, 100% rehabilitation, but I can see how it works and I understand the reasoning behind giving them jobs and giving them day release. Uh, but, yeah, I just... I have a lot of thoughts on it. And at the moment in Melbourne, um, a big expose has come out against the uh, one of our kind of major psychiatric institutions where a lot of violent murderers are. Uh, and I'll talk about it on another episode. But basically, uh, it's come out that for 10 years, they've been given day release for no reason at all. Uh, and they've been committing crimes and then going back there at night. Um, and I'm ticked off about it personally. Um, and at some point I'll talk about it because it involves a case that I've already talked about, uh, Courtney Heron, who her murderer was sentenced to like 20 years in prison and he's done uh, one year and he's looking at being released. So um, I, I really want to talk to Courtney's dad, who is a big proponent in of changing this. Um, and yeah, at some point I hope I will. Sinead's brother, Tyson Edwards, has made a touching tribute to his sister after after the trial was over. He said, quote, Sinead was like a free-flying, beautiful butterfly touching the hearts of those wherever she landed. We are devastated. Our hearts shattered at the senseless loss of our beautiful Sinead. Sinead was an example for all of us. Her priorities were in people, genuine connections, helping others, personal growth, pursuing self-fulfillment, loving fully and doing the right thing. She had a toughness, resilience and fearlessness that we all admired. Nothing got in her way. She decided what she wanted and went about making it happen, collecting an abundance of loyal friends along the way, unquote. And that's just the perfect way to sum it up. The family set up a GoFundMe to assist with the expatriation costs to bring Sinead's body home, uh, which was set up in the September. And this is not a cheap thing, especially considering... uh, Melbourne's on the other side of the world and it's a 24-hour flight. Their goal to raise was, uh, it was in British pounds, so it was £8,000 and they reached £13,000. Now, around the time that they set up the GoFundMe, the Georgian government came forward and said, no, no, you don't have to do that. Um, We'll cover the expatriation costs, which was not to save face. It was just purely trying to do the right thing, which is another reason why I was just really blown away because I'd never heard of a government covering expatriation costs. So the family basically um, put the money you know, towards the cost of the family having to travel to the trial um, and all of those things. And you can still see the GoFundMe. It's still up so you can see kind of what it went towards and all of their updates. To wrap up, Sinead's colleague, a fellow teacher and expat, Ross in Tbilisi, told The Sun about Sinead, quote, she probably lived more in 31 years than many live in 80 years and she probably positively impacted more people in that time than many, many other people do in their whole lives, unquote. Her friend Lena, who I wanted to wrap up with her words because it really sums up um, the loss, I guess, and it 
I found a really powerful quote. She said, quote, I feel every day even more pain of losing her, knowing that it's impossible to see her again and realising how hard it is to meet people like Sinead, unquote. Sinead Edwards is just another name, just another solo female traveller that I've covered on this podcast who was murdered just doing their own thing, um, whether on a holiday, whether hiking, whether travelling, whether walking home, uh, whether walking to work. Uh, just a few names of women I've covered whose perpetrators we know the names of um, were Sarai Sierra in Turkey, a uh, solo female traveller on her own, just wanted to see Istanbul, always had wanted to, uh, murdered by a man who couldn't help himself. Ali Warren, uh, volunteer with local marine life in Mozambique, uh, murdered by a man who couldn't help himself. Michaela Macarivi, um, murdered on her honeymoon. Denise Picatheme, uh, American woman, murdered doing the Camino Trail in Spain, um, murdered by a man who just couldn't help himself. Kim Wall, Swedish journalist who was about to move to China, um, murdered in Denmark by a man who could not help himself. Um, Yetta Jacobs, uh, Australian grandmother who moved to South Africa thinking she was meeting the love of her life, but she was meeting, you know, a violent offender who killed her. Sarah Everard murdered walking home after having dinner with a friend in London. Lindsay Hawker, uh, I'm doing this like kind of I've got their names, but I don't have the, the facts. So I'm just doing it off the top of my head. Lindsay Hawker, British teacher living in Japan, living in Tokyo, one of the safest places in the world, uh, killed by one of her students because he couldn't help himself. Dahlia Yehia uh, went to Nepal to volunteer after the 2015 earthquake, killed by her host who couldn't help himself. Narumi Kurosaki, who was trying to distance herself, a Japanese student who was on exchange at a French university, killed by her boyfriend uh, who travelled across the world to kill her because he couldn't handle the fact that she was moving on without him. Christine Prince, a Welsh nanny who moved to Canada for a better life, killed uh, by someone who we still don't know the name of. Uh, Grace Mullane, a British backpacker in New Zealand, by all accounts, you know, just having a good time, went out on a date and was killed by a guy who really didn't have to do that and um, just couldn't help himself. Emma Kelty uh, decided to be, you know, do this amazing feat, kayaking down the... Uh, the Amazon River, um, killed by a bunch of different people, uh, men who just couldn't help themselves, toy accordingly, just walking her dog on a beach and killed by a man who couldn't help himself who is still in India because he can't face the consequences of what he did, uh, and pregnant woman, Sarah Cusack, who was in uh, Panama going for a jog, killed by a man who just saw her and just decided that he, he was going to kill her. Um, these are just the names of women who we have the names of their killers. That doesn't include all the women I've covered who it still remains a mystery who killed them. Um, and, yeah, if you want to go back and kind of listen to those, it's one of the main things with this podcast that I think about a lot. And, like, I get so many amazing emails from women uh, who have done this, like, more than I have, like, they've they've gone to really dangerous places and taught English and done amazing things and volunteered and 
I, I'm just always blown away by the communications I get, some of them, what they've gone through. Um, I had one last week just bore me to tears, um, what they've gone through in the last couple of years and um, all the places that they people want to go to. And um, don't ever let this deter you. Just have your wits about you um, because it's likely not to happen to you, as I say, over and over again. I don't like when there's a murder like Sinead and you go back and you look at comments from people who you know keyboard warriors and they write oh well she shouldn't have been in a country like that and then people write back do you know where Georgia is and the person's like no they know nothing about the country it's actually a very safe country when I first went taught in Cambodia my mum flipped out like and I was like mum do you know how far Cambodia's come like you're still in 19 19- late 70s where she's seen coverage of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and stuff. I said, do you know how many expats there are? Do you know how helpful people are? Do you know how much safer I feel in Siem Reap than I do in Melbourne? Do you know I've never felt in danger? Do you know my landlord um, locks up the gates at night and makes sure I'm safe here? Like, and this is, I'm more likely to come to harm in Melbourne. Um, So, you know, just educate yourself about where you're traveling to and the risks, but don't ever let it put you off. Uh, because all of these women were just trying to have, have experiences that, you know, you, you can't take them with you. Um, but for years and for the rest of your life, you'll cherish these memories. And I cherish so many of my memories and almost every single one involves travel. So don't ever let it deter you. Thank you for requesting Georgia patron Christine. It's been eye-opening and fascinating and I'm glad that I could tell Sinead's story. Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. I've put up Sinead's episode page and I will add um, some kind of video resources when I have time this week. Become a patron, uh, $1 to $5 a month tiers. You get a shout-out at the start of an episode. Uh, $5 and over, you get to choose location for an upcoming episode and I will find you a case. Um, We're almost at 100 patrons, so that's way more than I thought I would. I know that, like, other people have, like, 3,000, but, like, I don't have big expectations for really anything. I'm like, I'm an eternal pessimist, so I'm amazed that there's even 100. Um, Become... Oh, become a patron. Um, if you don't want to become a patron, but you want to give to the podcast, it you know goes towards. Um, if you just think I'm worthy of that, um, or paying for the the website each month, uh, the PayPal is unknown passage podcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, I'm not taking case requests at the moment. I've just got the whole next year or more planned out. I have too many um, cases to do, including my Patreon location requests, which are priority. Um, leave a rating or review if you like the show. And next week I'll be back with an all new case and probably an all new location as well. I hope that you have a really great week. Uh, and yeah, have a good one.